0: We know of new methods of
1: attack. The horse. the fifth column. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster. I am delighted to be joining you. I am joined by Matt Welch, Michael Moynihan, there in New York.
2: Hi.
1: I'm an SF. And What a dump. Yeah, it's 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 a pleasure to be with you guys. This is a special special episode. It's an unusual episode in that we also have uh, an interview with our friend Coleman Hughes, and this is the week of the publication of his long-awaited book, um, "The End of Race Politics: A Defense of Colorblindness." Uh, so I talk to him one-on-one. We'll we'll drop we'll drop that in, um, and then we'll we'll proceed with our our, our kind of typical program, our typical, wonderful, extraordinary, exciting program, which I know you're all very excited about. Should we um, listen to Coleman and you right now? But yeah. Do you want to um, do I, that now? I am starting to drop it in right now. It's easy. Let's do it. Or we could just talk or something. No, fuck. <laughs> we, yeah, we can pick it
2: up and talk about what you
1: guys talked about. Yeah, all right. So all right let's, see, let's listen to Coleman Hughes. Here's me with Coleman talking about his exciting new book and a couple of other things. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. I'm here with my very good friend, Coleman Hughes. I've been looking forward to having this conversation for some time we are here to discuss his newly published book. It's been out for, I guess, just over 24 hours, The End of Race Politics. The subtitle of that book being Arguments for a Colorblind America. And before we start, Coleman, I want to give a little bit of of my own review here for anyone Mm. who cares about my opinion on these things. Mm -hmm. I think that anyone with even a passing interest in these topics should immediately purchase this book. I think it is a distinct and an important meditation on our very dysfunctional national obsession with race. I text you a little earlier today because I pounded through this thing last night. It is a quick, easy read. And by quick and easy, I don't mean that there aren't demanding ideas in there. I mean, it is the kind of thing you want to keep reading, but it's clear-eyed, it's concise. I think it's eminently compelling. And I think it is a really vital kind of compendium of the most prominent and consequential ideas and fallacies, frankly, that inform a, a lot of contemporary beliefs about race. I don't know exactly how you describe the book when you're thinking about your kind of elevator pitch, and I want to hear that. Hmm. But also just want to know how you're feeling. I don't remember exactly when you started writing this book, but it feels like it was just yesterday. Mm-hmm. But this is something that you clearly have invested a great deal of time and effort into. So I'm looking forward to just unpacking a little bit of it with you.
3: Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Camille. I, I guess this is something like the seventh or eighth time I've been on the fifth column, I, which I didn't actually realize until I saw Matt's Substack post the last time I was on. So I think obviously the audience... is didn't realize is, that either. Yeah, <laughs> that, it doesn't sound right. It sounds like two or three times what the real number is, but I think it's true. So I think your audience will be more than familiar with my general perspective, but the way I describe this book is basically this word colorblindness has become a dirty word. At the height of the civil rights movement, there was a brief moment where people on both sides of the aisle agreed, and even some uh, quote-unquote radical activist groups agreed, that colorblindness ought to be the goal of race policy and race relations in the U.S. You can even read in the book Black Power, they acknowledge the caveat that colorblindness may be the ultimate goal. This is back in the 60s. In the past 50 years, it's gone from an idea whose time has come to either synonymous with white supremacy or, at best, extremely naive. So before my book, if you Google colorblindness race to distinguish it from the actual visual condition, you will just get only articles telling you why colorblindness is bad. So I essentially wanted to rescue what I view as a wise philosophy from being categorized as evil. And just to define it, there's been this long pattern of cliches where people say the phrase, I don't see color. I think that phrase has given critics a really convenient target because they can just point back and say, don't be naive. Obviously, we all see color, right? You're just denying the fact that you do see color. And beyond that, that you are theoretically capable of of racial bias, and a clever psychologist could put you in a lab, do an experiment, and show you in some way that you can be racially biased, and uh, when the stakes are high enough, it's possible that we can all be made to act in racially biased ways. So at the beginning of the book, I say, let's just get rid of this phrase, I don't see color, and replace it with what we should mean to say, which is, I try to treat people without regard to race, and I want to see that enshrined in public policy. That's the thesis of the book.
1: A lot of people talk about, and I think we've even talked about it, perhaps even on this podcast, that we seem to have stepped back from some of the peak crazy of the 2020s, perhaps 2021. But it seems like some of this stuff that you describe in this book, which you call neo-racism, and we'll talk about that term next, I think, Some of this is just baked in at this point. It is deep inside institutions. It is a matter of corporate policy for all of the recent conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Those policies are still very much on the books in many places. But even more than that, it is just part of many people's philosophy about what is wise, good, and just that we should in general not be paying attention to people who insist that colorblindness is a virtue. Do you think that people are ready to receive something like this? Obviously, we both hope it doesn't fall on deaf ears, Mm -hmm. but is the soil perhaps right for this kind of book right now? Or Mm. do we have a little bit of work to do yet before we can hope that we've actually turned a corner?
3: Right. That's a good question. So I think Chris Anderson, the head of TED, said offhand in his recent podcast with Sam Harris that Ted could never have invited me two years ago, which is to say, your you listeners may be familiar with the kind of Ted debacle that happened when I talked there a few months, almost a year ago at this point, actually. You know, but two years ago, I couldn't even have been invited because that was in the aftermath of George Floyd and the trends that touched off in corporate America, in higher education, in K-12 through education, and so forth with everyone adopting the mindset, maybe I can't fight white supremacy uh, in the police, but I can center race, as the vocabulary goes, in my own sector. So we're definitely in a better place than we were then, but to say that we're not at peak is not to say we're in a good place, right? You could have said in 1948 global violence peaked in 1945, Mm -hmm. right? That that, that doesn't Mm -hmm. mean you're in a good place. That just means you're (laughs) narrowly past a terrible peak. On the other hand, it's amazing how every two years, a new word seems to be the flashpoint. So it was wokeness, Mm. and then it was CRT for about a year or two, and now it's DEI. And inevitably, these words become overused, polluted, and you instantly begin arguing over having semantic arguments over what you mean by the term. But they're really all of a piece with a philosophy that I call neo-racism. And this is a philosophy that views race as an incredibly important part of our society inherently. It believes that because the history of the United States has been struck through by racism, that therefore race has permanent meaning and should have permanent meaning at the individual psychological level and should be inscribed in policy, that we should be teaching kids to view themselves as belonging to a particular race at as young an age as possible to, quote-unquote, interrupt racism. It views racism as like a constantly flowing river through all of our psyches that can only be interrupted through active and constant counter pressure, and that's why you have things like woke kindergarten in uh, San Francisco, where they're taking Spanish-speaking kids that need to learn English and math and teaching them about white supremacy instead as their math and reading scores decline. Yeah, two-thirds
1: of the population in that particular school yeah.
3: spoke English as a second language or were yeah. in some sort of
1: ESOL program. Right. And at school, they were paying someone $250,000 right. to come in and try to teach them about racism. And the kids were just like, ¿cómo? <laughs> yeah. Get out of here. <laughs> if you don't understand, that is just your white supremacy. <laughs> um, yeah. That is an excellent example of the persistent craziness. That we're still navigating.
3: The reason I call it neo-racism is because I feel that's the most accurate way to call it a spade. When you have someone mm-hmm. like Sarah Zhang, this is a years old controversy now, but tweeting things like, just like the most vile things someone could tweet about white people. Aren't they fit to live underground like groveling goblins? Mm-hmm. Sh- shouldn't they just stop procreating, etc.? You could say these are jokes, and I'll defend any comedian making any joke, no matter how vile, if it's funny. But these are just tweets from a journalist. Had they been against any other group, they would have been recognized as just frank racism. I -hmm. want to call a spade by calling out the ideology that encourages people to think this way, not just about white people, but also about black people, the kind of stereotypes of almost childlike patronization that you get in a book like white fragility where she says you should not cry around black people because it reminds us of times in the past where white women's tears were used as justifications to lynch people like Emmett Till which I don't know about you Camille that's a pretty that's <laughs> like a I've never heard of someone who's heard of someone who's heard of someone who's heard of a black person that has ever done that. I suppose it's possible these days.
1: You work yourself up enough. It's entirely possible. I'm glad you drilled down on neo-racism. I was going to ask you to define that term. When I encountered it in the book, I had to think about it because I shy away from using phrases like that to describe people. And you, along with Sam Harris, to say nothing of your particular views on any issue, are probably among the most kind of equanimical people I know. You have this tendency to try and approach issues in a mostly conciliatory way. Um, And a phrase like that is pretty charged. It brings to mind a lot of the charges of racism that we encounter on a regular basis, which can be pretty polarizing.
3: Yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, perhaps I should have been even uh, more careful about the generalizations I make here, because not everyone I criticize... I would consider to be an, a neo-racist. I quote this woman by the last name Kililani, who gave a speech at Yale talking about her fantasies of unloading a revolver into white people's skulls and being happy that she had done the world a favor. Yeah, that was crazy. So, you know, that is something I'm comfortable calling neo-racist. Uh, when you have a, a study like the one I quote from a Brown professor that just took text from Mein Kampf and switched out the word Jew and white people and found that almost like 50% of college students just agreed with passages from Mein Kampf. As as Sam Harris might put it about Islam, there are concentric circles around that core, which are much less intense and less deeply bigoted. But the, the philosophy of the civil rights movement viewed racism as something which in principle can be pointed in any direction. Now, the trendy thing today is to say racism equals prejudice plus power. Black people don't have power, therefore black people cannot be racist. The people who adopt this claim the mantle of the civil rights movement when you can very easily read in Martin Luther King's last book how he defines racism as the doctrine of congenital inferiority of a people, any group of people. Um, How he said multiple times in his life that black supremacy is as dangerous as white supremacy. You can look at Bayard Rustin's long record as well on these questions. And as a matter of historical accuracy and politics, we should just note the modern anti-racist movement the Ibram Kendys, the Robin D'Angelo's, they are not operating from the philosophy of the civil rights movement. Every Martin Luther King Day, there is a spate of articles claiming to link them. But the truth is, they are operating much more from the philosophy of critical race theory, not Diet CRT, that's in a kindergarten classroom, mm-hmm. but the Kimberly Crenshaw, Derek Bell version of critical race theory, which in its own words understood itself as a a critique and rejection of civil rights rhetoric. You can go back and read them say this. The reason we are starting critical race theory is because we find the, the civil rights rhetoric of the 1960s to be fundamentally flawed and insufficient, right? This is how they spoke. So that's what this movement comes out of. And the fact that it continues to have the brand loyalty of the civil rights movement while having changed the Product inside is uh, the purpose of my second chapter of this book.
1: I want to talk about some of my favorite things in the book, especially some things that I didn't know about or hadn't heard you talk about before. You talk about your grandfather pursuing his career in engineering and some advice mm-hmm. that he receives from a mm-hmm. colleague who seems genuinely interested in his well being. And he gives him some advice. And I just thought that the story itself was a really marvelous illustration of the
3: the pitfalls of over-concern. It's by far my favorite block quote from the book, and you can read it in my grandfather's writing as opposed to hearing me tell it secondhand if you pick up the book. But he turned 90 last year and wrote a 30-page memoir of his life. Mm. He grew up in segregated D.C. in a very large and poor family, And eventually, by a mix of natural talents, work, being in the right place at the right time, and serving as an engineer in the Korean War, he became an engineer at General Electric. And in his first few years there, he had a well-meaning white colleague tell him not to pursue the managerial role because white engineers would never work under a black manager. And this is the 1950s. So he just didn't pursue the manager position, even though he got great marks and would have been a natural choice for a promotion, he just let it pass him by year after year. Then eventually something changed. The opening came up and he put his name forward and his boss was quite surprised and told him, "More, Warren, I, I didn't even know you were interested in this. Meanwhile, he had been privately interested in it for a long time. And he went for it. He got the job and had absolutely no problems managing white engineers who were happy to work for him. So his misperception that the racism in that case was more intense than it actually was, a misperception born of apparently well-meaning concern, actually prevented him for years from reaching for the promotion. No doubt there are dangers in underestimating racism, but there are also dangers in overestimating racism. There's a danger to telling uh, someone that the world is more resistant to their success than in fact it is in the same chapter,
1: you have a list of fallacies that I don't think I've really encountered anyplace else before, and mm-hmm. these are core tenets of the modern social justice perspective on how to think about the world and I would love to detail all of them, but we don't have time for that, but you can get the book and you can get into all of this. But the disparity fallacy is something that you hear about all of the time. It seems to be the fundamental thing that most people are concerned about when it comes to any number of important issues in the academy or in the news broadly. It's usually the disparities that come front and center.
3: Yeah, so this is an area where There's very little I say that you couldn't glean, at least by implication, from reading one of a dozen books by Thomas Sowell, Amy Chua, or Nathan Glazer. But it's one of the fallacies that has been the strongest and most persistent even among experts for the past uh, 50, 60 years. This is the idea that when you see some disparity between two racial groups, whether that is income, wealth gap, incarceration crime, maternal mortality, that disparity must be caused by racism or by discrimination of some kind. This is one of the deepest misunderstandings that exist out there and seems impenetrable to to facts. In my book, I argue the reality is that disparities are like tumors in the sense that they seem conclusory and by definition bad, but actually when you look at the facts, most tumors are benign. And the fact is that most disparities are likewise benign, even though they ring alarm bells in the mind of many observers. If you actually look at the landscape of racial and intra-racial, that is, between ethnic groups, disparities that exist, it is impossible to make sense of the theory that they are caused mainly by discrimination, If they were caused mainly by discrimination, you would expect to see a very different set of disparities than the ones that actually exist in the world. So for example, you can look at any given racial group and rather than compare one to another, compare ethnic groups in the same racial group. You can compare Nigerian Americans to Haitian Americans who have wildly different outcomes. You can compare white Americans of Russian descent to white Americans of French or Irish descent, wildly different outcomes. Compare Indian Americans who are the highest earning ethnic group higher than any white American ethnic group. Compare Indians to Bangladeshi Americans, massively different incomes. Some of these income gaps are as big as 50 cents on the dollar. Chinese Americans, to Hmong Americans, etc. The fact that so many ethnic groups which face the same level of discrimination and they do face discrimination, to be clear nevertheless have such wildly different outcomes on the very top and at the very bottom of any given metric suggest that discrimination can't be the main driver of these disparities. And again, you can you can also look at the longstanding disparities between white Americans from the North and white Americans from the South in terms of there being at any point in American history, there's more crime in the South, there's more of all, all, all kinds of issues that if they belong to two separate races would automatically be blamed on racism. Yeah, I had an interesting experience
1: last week Friday. I went to Denver, and I kind of decided to do it at the very last minute. And I went to a Methodist church on a Friday evening, and it was for a book event for a gentleman who you mention more than a few times in the book and quote at length in a couple of places. And it is a gentleman named Ibram Kendi. And he has a new book that is coming out, and it's a new old book in the sense that it's a book that was written by someone else you talk about in the book, a woman named Zora Neale Hurston, this singular woman who wrote about race and individualism and was a vehement critic of racial solidarity, of race pride, and perhaps even the notion of race itself in a really fundamental sense. And I was so surprised (laughs) that Kendi was essentially rewriting one of her books for younger audiences that I wanted to be in the room to like hear him talk about this book. And I hoped I could ask him a question and I did get a chance to ask him a question. And I asked him how he squares his own perspective with Zora's perspective, because there does seem to be a pretty meaningful distinction there. And he insisted that there was a tremendous similarity between their ideas, that they were pretty much you know, singing from the same hymnal. Um, I suspect that you see what I see uh, with respect to kind of the distance between the, the modern perspective that Kenny represents and the perspective that people like Zora represented.
3: Yeah, Z- Zora Neale Hurston in her autobiography has a fantastic passage that, that you and I both know well, where she talks about how it just doesn't make sense to have race pride even racial solidarity, which is generally seen as more benign, she's against. She, she says things like, why would a Jewish person feel race pride at the fact that Einstein also happened to be a Jew? You, you made no contribution to Einstein's theory of relativity. And likewise, why would you feel shame over the fact that, say, Harvey Weinstein was a Jew. Mm-hmm. These things have nothing to do with you. You should feel pride and shame based on your individual accomplishments and failures alone. And she she basically views race pride, racial solidarity as fictions that are appealing psychologically, but ultimately just lies. And it's quite moving to... Read someone from her time period, with her life experience, making those kinds of arguments that appeal to me and to you and to many people to this day. In the 1950s, Zora Neale Hurston wrote a scathing editorial criticizing Brown versus Board. When Brown versus Board happened, there were various disagreements about on what basis integration should happen and how should it happen. Should it happen by fiat? How much force should be applied to schools to integrate? Should you actually just get rid of black schools altogether? How is the sausage actually going to get made? And there's a fantastic book about this called Acting White, The Ironic Legacy of Desegregation by Stuart Buck, which I highly recommend. And it goes into the fact that there was lots of pushback within the black community against desegregation because you had certain black schools that were that had been doing very well, had a, a community with a a history and so forth, <clears throat> and because of the top-down dictates of desegregation, they just had to go, even though uh, some of them were quite functional. For example, the, the school my grandmother went to across the street from my grandfather in segregated d c was called uh, Dunbar High School. Mm-hmm studied famously by many people, including Thomas Sowell and Tucker Carlson back when he was a serious journalist.
1: <laughs> what are you talking uh, about, Colin? He just talked to Putin. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure he asked him very serious, sober, intense questions.
3: Um, as he always does. But Dunbar High School famously outperformed all the white high schools in Washington, D.C. on standardized tests in a few different years. And yet it might have been dissolved in a really idiotic, counterproductive way, given the aims of Brown versus Board. What I understand Zora Neale to have been, Hurston to have been arguing is that um, she was very much pro-cultural integration, the, the end of mandated segregation, but she didn't like that meant every school, which happened to previously be a black-only school, couldn't continue to operate, especially insofar as it was a good school. Right Now, that right. argument doesn't actually rely on the concept of race pride, per se, mm-hmm. but I think Kendi wants to bend that, based on uh, his comments to you, he wants to bend that into arguing that really Zora Neale Hurston was all about race pride, yeah. which is patently ridiculous yeah. if you just read her really long and detailed and piercing critique of race pride
1: what would she have thought about this man a man who insists that anywhere he sees racial disparities he sees racial discrimination would she be pleased by the fact that he is the person translating her words um for a younger audience um we're obviously in violent agreement about lots and lots of things Um, But one place where I know we do have some disagreement is with respect to the taxonomy of race. And I think you do Mm -hmm. a really great job in the book of detailing precisely what race is and what it is not. And Mm -hmm. you offer this viewpoint of the the deficiencies of a realist approach, imagining that race can explain in a, a really fundamental way what makes populations different from one another. But you also bring in what genetic and biological innovations and advancements have actually told us about the degree to which there is something material to race. I don't want to say that this is a a compatibilist um, take on what race is, because that's not quite accurate, but it is something that seems a little different from my own perspective, which is that the taxonomy itself is the fundamental problem and that a great deal of effort probably ought to be expended in service of trying to get rid of the race taxonomy because it is in and of Mm -hmm. itself injurious. And more than that, there's probably nothing meaningful about these categories. There is nothing unique and common to all people who are regarded as black. Mm -hmm. And when I say unique, that would mean that thing would also have to be excluded from all people who are white when it comes to our genome. So maybe you could mm-hmm. respond to that and provide a little color for why you're still willing to personally identify as black, despite the fact that your heritage is a little more complicated than that.
3: Yeah, so I guess I would tease apart a few things. One, I think I'm fully with you in critiquing the census categories as pointless. Uh, I actually I go into this in some detail in the book. The way that the received categories of African American, Hispanic, Asian Pacific Islander, the way that these received categories have come to us have absolutely nothing to do with science, population genetics, and so forth. They have to do with vague intuitions about what constitutes a group of people filtered through literal political opportunism and... Washington D.C. sausage making, backroom lobbying, and 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 advocacy organizations trying to tinker definitions in their favor. That is how these categories, in the main, have been created, and I view them as nonsense. And the great book on this by David Bernstein mm-hmm. called Classified. I highly recommend. Now putting that, sweeping that to the side, the conversation about what population geneticists understand about the human species and whether there is any valid signal in the noise with respect to different populations, I try in the book, especially in the appendix, to convey what I think the reality is. The reality is that race is not like Uh, and again, you can call this race, you can call this populations, but this Mm -hmm. is something separate from census categories. This is something we're not talking about every day in the newspaper. This is what population geneticists are studying. The categories they're studying, which you could call race or populations, are not like biological sex. Biological sex has precisely the characteristic you just pointed out in that literally almost every male aside from extremely rare exceptions that prove the rule, mm-hmm. have testes and X and Y chromosome. Right. And every female ha- ha- has the opposite. No trait like that defines the races. In other words, that there's an almost perfect correlation of these characters with our concept of gender. What population geneticists can do is they can look at every point in the genome along which people vary because most of our genes are like uh, just the same in general Yeah, and plug it into a huge equation and see whether there are broad clusters. And what differentiates a cluster from a full difference is that it's not going to look like men and women look on a graph where there's just two clusters that don't even touch each other. All the clusters are going to bleed into each other. There are going to be people Quote unquote, in one cluster that are closer to many people in a different cluster than to their own quote unquote cluster. The clusters are mathematical abstractions. If you have ever done statistics and you remember doing a line of best fit on a scatter plot, Mm -hmm. you have all these points there, but there's one line that summarizes the data better than any other line, even though there might not be any point that's actually on the line, right? So it's a mathematical abstraction, these clusters. I think many people have wanted to argue that the human species has no clusters, essentially, and that there's therefore almost no point even to looking into a genetic variation in populations that were separated for long periods of time. That's That seems not to be the case. It seems like there is substantial clustering, far short of crisp differences between populations, but there's substantial clustering that does overlap to a pretty fair degree with lay concepts of race, like African and Caucasian and Asian, and then there are clusters within clusters, and so forth. So I try to convey all of that complexity to, on the one hand, say, no, it's not the case that we're in a zero-clustering scenario, Mm -hmm. which is what many people would have it who agree that race is a social construct. But when people say that, sometimes they mean there's no clustering whatsoever. And so I want to argue, yes, race is a social construct. Boxes on the census are a total social construct. But there is clustering as a result of migration patterns, populations separated for tens of thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And it's okay to look into that. And on the other hand, we are not in the situation that hardline race realists have thought we're in where there is a neat separation between any given cluster and any other cluster. Yeah. I haven't seen any sort of statistical treatment of this or
1: rigorous analytical treatment of this, but I at least see more instances of people rather confidently and stridently talking about race and IQ, for example, on social media and various other places, oftentimes from anonymous accounts, which doesn't discredit Mm -hmm. their perspective, but definitely shows that they're trying to evade whatever culpability comes with expressing those perspectives publicly. Um, but I'm seeing that more often, but it, it does seem to me that they overlook a great deal of the complexity associated with something like intelligence, which is not going to be tied to just a couple pairs of genes. It's a polymorphic trait and it's going to have uh, material interaction with the rest of your genome, but also the social milieu that you live in, all of those things are likely to come into play.
3: And a broader point is just, I don't think that it's a good thing to dwell so much on rival theories of racial difference. There's this great video that I think probably most people listening to this have seen where Morgan Freeman is talking to Mike Wallace and uh, Mike Wallace asks, how are we gonna get past racism? And Morgan Freeman says, I'm gonna ask you to stop calling me a black man and I'm going to stop calling you a white man. You're going to call me Morgan. I'm going to call you Mike. And Mike Wallace is just baffled by this. And it's this really deep kind of charismatic moment. And the wisdom to it, I think, is that we don't benefit from this invidious racial talk, right? Um, whether that is race and IQ the latest one on Twitter is: Who abolished slavery first? Was it white people or black people?
4: <laughs> yeah, and it's Matt like, Walsh.
3: yeah, I don't have objections to nerds interested in the topic for the topic's sake. Yeah, but I reject the framing of these questions always in terms of race. Yeah, like why is race the first way to frame these questions? You could spend your whole life thinking about the differences between white Northerners and white Southerners, which throughout American history have been vast. Mm-hmm. But people just don't do that because they happen to be the same color. And again, that kind of quietism, like the not talking about it, very little good comes of just taking these invidious differences and rival theories of why people are different and just shooting it right into the aorta of society. I think, now I give the caveat that I'm happy to talk about legitimate instances of racism, whether at the interpersonal level or at the systemic level, but the vast majority of racial talk that goes on in the news, on Twitter, on social media, and so forth, is just bullshit. It's just stereotyping whole groups of people as either inherently good or inherently bad. All it is doing is making this race concept more salient to people, making you think more and more frequently about your race and others' race in your daily lives. It, and so much of it is toxic that I think uh, we would be wise to just dial it down in from every direction, from the far right, uh, from the far left, from frankly the center left, from everywhere.
1: Towards the end of your book, appropriately, you delve into solutions. And again, I commend the book to everyone listening, even the appendices, which I read in full. But Towards the end of the book, you talk about equity and affirmative action, and there's a sense in which you are arguing pretty forcefully against affirmative action. You talk about the power of euphemism, but you also say something that kind of surprised me. The quote is, if as a society we are going to strive for equity, then we must keep two things in front of our minds. And you you talk about what those things are, but Mm -hmm. what surprised me, and the rest is interesting too, but what surprised me was that you said, if we're going to do this... And I'm curious about whether or not you think that the striving for equity is a worthwhile societal goal, if it genuinely has redeeming qualities. Because there are places yes. where you seem to think that, you know, affirmative action, for example, is generally bad, but maybe it's a good idea for an all-white police force in a say predominantly black neighborhood to be um, enriched with people who look a bit differently but perhaps it's a matter of how you go about pursuing those ends.
3: Right. Look, in my ideal world, everyone would read my book or have already read Thomas Sowell's book Uh and instantly change all of their beliefs to understand that. (laughs) Exchanging error for truth, yes. Yes, yeah. everyone would just exchange error for truth, update their model of what causes racial disparities, and there would just be far less vitriolic resentment, there would be no ra- riots after George Floyd's death, and so on and so forth. There would be no prison abolition movement, there would be no, no, none of it. Um, but I wrestle with the problem that in the real world, particularly in America, with respect to African Americans in particular, as distinct from quote-unquote white Americans, because the story of black Americans so deeply revolves around the so-called legacy of slavery and persistent racial inequality. That this is this, it's so deeply stamped into to the consciousness of what people now see as America, the American story it seems unlikely to me that people are going to stop caring about that particular disparity, right? Because people already don't care about the disparity between whites and Asians, even though there are vast in many ways. The disparity that uh, people care less about the disparity between Hispanics and whites. Uh, People care not at all about disparities within each racial group. But people do, and and a lot of well-meaning people do, care about disparities between black Americans and white Americans. So another way of looking at it, another way of approaching it is saying, given the fact that not everyone is going to wake up and agree with me and Thomas Sowell that these disparities are not mainly caused by racism past and present, what is the responsible responsible and sober-minded way to go about a narrowing of these gaps? So the responsible way to do that would be, first and foremost, to understand that disparities are never going to be completely eliminated in a multicultural society. In other words, unless you're living in a monoculture where every culture is identical, mm-hmm. you can't expect every culture to behave identically. Literally, uh, it's illogical. You can't celebrate cultural diversity and say how important it is and then expect everyone to perform the same across the board, right? Right. So the first thing is to understand there are inherent limits to equity. And that's the first caveat that I issue after that quote you gave. The second thing is to understand that the way you push towards that, the narrowing of the, those gaps is as, por- as important as the goal itself. So it's no good to try to close racial gaps simply by lowering the bar by which you judge black and Hispanic people discriminating against white individuals on the basis of their skin as is now considered normal in policies up to and including emergency aid policies during COVID time. Because in that way, you're, the cure is is worse than the disease. And so I argue if you are interested in reducing racial racially disparate outcomes, the responsible way to do that is to obe- obey those two caveats and adopt basically what Martin Luther King recommended in his book, Why We Can't Wait, which is programs targeted at the poor on the basis of poverty. Now, if you want to expand poverty to some more sophisticated concept of that's not just based on like income or wealth, but is based on other markers of a community being in social disrepair, it's fine by me. As long as race is not the superficial characteristic that you are targeting. And then I give the example of Roland Fryer's very interesting experiment with Houston Public Schools, where he raised math and reading scores by a whole lot, by firing the principals, firing half the teachers, extending the school day, having a culture of high expectations, and was able to really make a difference. Uh, Obviously, these things would be impossible, in part because of unions. But uh, I try to sketch out what Given that someone might care about equity, in particular in the case of black Americans, what would be the responsible way to go about it? Sure. I think that's a great point and a
1: great concluding sentiment. Um, One thing I do want to give you an opportunity to comment on, because I noticed in the uh, acknowledgement section, uh, a friend of both of ours, someone with whom we've recorded conversations in the past and collaborated on different things with, is Yasha Monk, who earlier this week, or maybe it was late last week, it was reported that there are some... Allegations of sexual misconduct against him and The Atlantic, at least, has made a statement saying that they are kind of suspending their relationship with him. And obviously he's under a tremendous scrutiny as a result of this. But here we have yet another example of allegations, um, serious allegations, but allegations, nevertheless, that are having profound consequences for someone personally and professionally. And, you know, is there a criminal investigation? Not that I'm aware of. There are allegations, which against anyone ought to be investigated, but it's hard not to be a little bit uncomfortable with the way that things are proceeding, especially since we're just exiting a moment where a lot of prominent people on the left were saying, and I don't know if it's a lot, but enough prominent people were saying things like, you know, if there are allegations of mass rape, we need to see some evidence Right. Insisting on evidence, waiting for the outcome of, of it, uh, just some sort of investigative process um, seems appropriate, but it's very much being tried in the core public opinion right now. Um, and it's something that I'm thinking about and I know you've been thinking about. So I'm wondering what your, your thoughts are on that situation.
3: Yeah, so this has really brought a cloud over what would otherwise be uh, just a, a week of celebration for me. Let's be clear, Yasha Monk hasn't been accused of sexual assault. He's been accused of rape. And he's been accused not in a court of law, not in a civil suit of any kind. He's been accused in an email and an essay. And what's so toxic about this is is that the person who has accused him has already admitted in her essay that there is no evidence and there never will be evidence right there there is no physical evidence whatsoever. I don't know if she will bring charges. I mean she it seems like she could i don't know I don't know what's stopping her at this point, though she has reasons she's given reasons why she didn't do it immediately. This allegation is two and a half years old and just coming out now, and I think it's incredibly pernicious, how people have seized upon it, how he's already been punished effectively with no due process. I mean, this could literally happen to anyone, right? If if the criteria for punishing someone is one person can send an email to your boss saying something happened two years ago and you're suspended from your job as a result, what is to stop that from happening to anybody? Uh, I was talking to, uh, I assume, our mutual friend, Faisal um, al Mutar, who, when he was in Iraq, part of his job working with American troops was to vet claims that a particular person was in Al-Qaeda. In other words, if someone was in Al-Qaeda, the Americans were coming in and ripping you out of your house. And the moment Iraqis knew this, suddenly everyone was accusing everyone else of being in Al-Qaeda, right? Accusing... The neighbor that you don't like that you have a vendetta against, accusing the guy that slept with your wife, or whatever. You're, and Faisal's job was to vet these accusations, most of which were lies. Right? What happens when you have an accusation that carries such cultural power that no one even wants to vet it? It becomes weaponized, and that this has happened so many times. Because Aziz Ansari is the example that will that will be in enough people's minds as a close touch point, but it's happened enough times that responsible people with platforms should not just copy paste and amplify allegations for which there is zero evidence zero evidence other than a one person's word because if we allow that to become a norm and don't push back against it we we've just made a total mockery of the concept of justice of the concept of due process and if it were your brother or your father you would be screaming from the hills simply asking for there to be a process before people rush to judgment. Mm -hmm. And I think Yasha deserves that as much as anyone would in an analogous situation.
1: Yeah. No, I think that's that's eloquently put – um, I have a young daughter and a young son. When I hear about situations like this, we I think, know of
2: them. New I think about them
1: potentially being the, the victims of actual the sexual Trojan violence horse. and I also think about them the being someone column, who column, is column, accused column, column, of column, misconduct column, of this sort column, and column. imagining what if they are falsely accused? How do they defend themselves? It does seem important for us to maintain perspective about how to approach these situations And I think it is entirely possible for us to be rigorous and thoroughgoing in our support for people who are the victims of sexual violence and in support of the general principle of due process and the presumption of innocence. Uh, But I will say it is still a week that I've been pretty excited about and looking forward to it for a long time. I couldn't be more happy to have your book published and available to people there is a very short list of books that i can recommend to people who ask me what should i be reading um as i was at the ibram kendi event now i get to link them to this directly so coleman hughes it is it's been a pleasure to talk with you as it always is hope to do it in person soon we we, we, we. We know
2: of new methods of attack Right now we're back now we're
4: back
1: well that was shitty (laughs) (laughs) good lord what a disaster that was i am very much looking forward to that book being a tremendous bestseller um, yeah. I don't know if I you guys had today. a chance to read it um, No, but I bought it I, today though Yeah, I mean, I, I literally I stormed through it last night, finished it up this morning And it was, it was a joy to read Actually, yeah. for a lot of different reasons A joy it, to yeah, read? Genuinely, genuinely a joy to read um, pr- primarily, Probably. perhaps. He didn't get the. You're talk, just, uh, talking d- that, Joy MSN Reed. Yeah. Oh. Joy to read. <laughs> Dutch boy. She I, has can't, a, I can't help a, that. Our
2: favorite Dutch columnist. She has a blurb in the back, right?
1: So. exactly like, Fuck this yeah. guy <laughs> <laughs> the worst yeah yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. You know, like, uncle tom who's not enough hate the for black me. face yeah. of white supremacy <laughs> yeah.
1: joy Reid. the other black face of white supremacy yeah 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 will um, be on your book too yeah no it was it was great and as i told coleman even the parts that i that i didn't fully agree with and there are mm-hmm. some Were still like interesting and compelling, and what I really love is just how tidy, how tidy the book is. (laughs) Like you can you can get he gets so much in there um, Mm -hmm. in a a pretty succinct way. Um, I just I think it's a great book. It gives people an orientation to all of the different culture war stuff that's been happening over the last couple of years, or at least all the different weirdness that's taken place with respect to race, and um, hopefully is a bit of an antidote and a remedy for people who have been following these conversations and have been a little confused or uncertain or a little unsure. Mm -hmm. I have
4: told you in private and have said it to people, and I'll say it publicly now, there is, in my view, a corrective underway. Coleman's book is one of the first to come out. Camille Foster's book, when that comes out, also will be part of that process. But the conversations that you guys have had on the fifth column – And elsewhere, in other places with Glenn Lowry, John McWhorter, Thomas Chatterton Williams, it is a different conception of race politics. It is coming Mm -hmm. about it in a much more individualist way, and it's much more, uh, from my just like passive consumer angle, um, invigorating and interesting. And I think there's an exhaustion level right now. And we'll get into other aspects of how, you know, 2020 and 2019 and 2018, the cultures that were sort of learned badly then Mm -hmm. still exist and are, we're dealing with the after effects now. But part of that uh, racial conversation is part of that. And what you guys have done, and I'm going to make you a collective for uh, just a half a moment, um, just because, you know, again, we've done these uh, episodes, you've done these episodes in the past like it's so interesting and uh differentiated variegated and it is uh it it gives a path out of this kind of like dank stupid Robin DiAngelo, mm-hmm. Ibram X. Kendi place um yeah. it locates it in you know Martin Luther King is the is the lodestar in Coleman's book it locates it like like Martin Luther King located his um uh Approach in the Declaration of Independence, in like fundamental American Enlightenment texts and Christianity, too, which is not to be forgotten. Um, Camille's re remembering his own weird version of Christianity as we speak, wow, I'm sure. That is um, weird, weird to say. Look, weird is, uh, like, that's a, that's a compliment. I <laughs>
2: Camille, it really connects with all of our listeners that also grew up in cults. So I don't think you're much different in that
1: sense. no, as I think I told you, there's only uh, just this weird relationship with the Branch Davidians. I wasn't actually a Branch yeah, Davidian. Yeah, just yeah, you, you, didn't play, you didn't play guitar like David <laughs>
2: Um No, I would say that, you know, I think Camille has told me as much, and I've experienced it too, is that the, people say, well, um, and this is often said by the enemies of people uh, like uh, Camille and Coleman and Thomas and, and Glenn, et cetera, is that, well, the, why would we, and I've heard this a lot, like why would we publicize this very extreme minority view? Um, not only is that wrong, is it's actually offensively wrong in the sense that amongst the elites... That might be a minority view at the moment. But even that's not true in the sense that when you establish this kind of intellectual edifice and the scaffolding that everyone has to climb on that. This is the one that you play on, right? This is the one that you're allowed to interact with. You think that everybody's in a minority, but you've also done something that is very rare in human history. I mean, it actually is rare in human history that there are ideas, I mean, particularly in democracies in open societies, that there are ideas that people don't want to say publicly. That's not that common, actually. If you look back, people had ideas, they said them quite openly. If they were bad ideas, they were, you know, debated, they lost the debate, etc. But the number of people who are in the elite, that are in journalism, and are quote-unquote black, too, that reach out and say, hey, love the show, totally agree with Camille, Wouldn't dare say it because I have a career to think about. (laughs) I can think of a few people um, that would really, really surprise people. There's others that you'd be like, oh, I kind of suspect that they were like that. But there's some that there's one guy in particular that I'm thinking about that I was like, oh, my God, that was such a strange and and invigorating email from this person who's a well-known writer who is like, no, no, um, I'm that person, too. But I don't really it's not really what that person writes about either. So not surprising they don't come out and say it as such. But that is the thing. When people are always saying this is a minority opinion, I think that it's a minority opinion, for, it, the intelligentsia's opinion. Which is a very loud microphone, has the levers of power, has the magazines, the newspapers, uh, mostly television networks, CNN, uh, um, uh, MSNBC, although CNN does have Coleman on as a contributor now, which is mm-hmm. great. Um, that, that's a minority viewpoint in America. And in the world, even. But in America, the people who are the minority are talking about, well, we can't have the Coleman view, the Glenn Lowry view, because that's not a representative view. Why would we have those people? on? I think it's a lot more representative than people acknowledge. So that's when you have, there was a hilarious clip. I think I sent it to you, Camille. I made it sent it to both of you. It was, it was the classic thing. Vice News used to do this all the time. That you go to a black barbershop when there's like a primary and you hang out. And there was a guy from <laughs> MSNBC who did this. And they were talking about Trump. And they were talking about why certain black people like Trump. And it was pretty interesting. And cuts back to, I don't know, Joe Scarborough. And they're like, what? Wow, that is. Why are they? How are they so we have to stop these people? And it's like, no, no, no. That like when you have to do these like pieces that the share of the black vote under Trump went up, and maybe we'll even go up further this time, who knows? And then you're like, huh? And then you're saying, well, you don't want to listen to people like Camille or Coleman, and it's not that they're Trump voters or supporters. It's like, no, you're you're suggesting that there's one way of thinking when you are quote unquote black or you're a quote unquote person of color. Like it's funny. I'm I'm um, sitting down with a former guest on the show tomorrow, um, Andrew Yang, uh, tomorrow morning. And it's funny, I'm going to ask him about this, because he's pretty interesting on this subject, on race and everything. But at one point during the debates in two, 2020, he said they said, like, the question was, you're the only person of color on stage. And he said, yes, I am the only person of color on stage. And I'm like, I don't know. Like, your parents are PhDs from Taiwan. You went to Phillips Exeter. He went to Columbia. I think he might have gone to Yale or Princeton, something like it's that. That's the too. prep
4: schools that really get you. Isn't yeah, it? and I mean, it's like <laughs> I, it's like I, I don't you went to Horace Mann, motherfucker. Yeah, oh, I, I, cut it, <laughs> it is, but it is like so
2: meaningless when you say you're a person of color, and you, and, you know, Andrew Yang speaks that said like you know people used to make fun of me when I came. I don't doubt that at all, um, but you know, he succeeded beyond you know I'd probably not beyond his wildest dreams because I mean his parents were successful too, but it's like it's all so fucking meaningless. So these. Books by people like Coleman, the one that Camille's going to produce too, in the, this podcast when Camille's talking about race too, It's like, it's not a crazy, weird point of view, actually, when you get out there in the world. It's and pretty I
1: normal. Mean, you use the well, word, mine, mine is kind of weird, but that's what it is, right? Uh, yeah. So. He's, an edge, he's an edge case. And <laughs> yeah. He's an edge lord. At
4: some point, he's going to convince us, and it's getting mm-hmm. closer by the minute. Yeah. Um, but like, uh, Camille, you weighed in these public opinion things uh, more than I do on these questions. I would presume. But am I not wrong that like um, majorities of black people have been against affirmative action forever? Yes. And against reparations for slavery forever? Like these things that, you know, the bad people like Coleman are saying and that's not representative is actually totally fucking representative. Is, am I wrong about that?
1: I mean, there's, yeah, there's a diversity of perspective, like a meaningful diversity of perspective on all those things. And as Coleman doc details in his book, I mean, even, even questions like whether or not black people <laughs> want policing in their communities mm-hmm. the polling tends to suggest that they do oh, at exactly. about the same rates as yeah. everyone else correct and that was true even when defund the police was the mantra um so yeah no there's always been a, a diversity of perspectives there has there been a much more uniform support for one political party um amongst black voters for some time without a yes. doubt um is that changing at least a little bit, it seems to be certainly at the moment, there seems to be some meaningful um, energy uh, with respect to just dissatisfaction with Democrats, um, but also some interest in supporting Trump. And that, that MSNBC thing you mentioned when is actually part of a special that they're doing black men in America is the special where they're exploring the, the apparently homogenous perspectives of black men (laughs) (laughs) except no, that's not exactly how it works. Uh, but the oh. premise of the series is uh, cool. Sp- Can't nah, wait to watch it. A little annoying. So, we touched on something towards the end of the conversation that was, uh, yeah, pressing matter um, that it was not extremely comfortable to bring up, but. I mean, Yasha Monk is someone we all know um, and have liked, who's been on the podcast. I uh, suspect plenty of us have been on his podcast or contributed to Persuasion or something along Never. those lines. Read his books. <laughs> Never been on his um, podcast.
4: Not black enough. It was
1: pretty shocking to see this news um, uh, come out. Uh, I wonder if either of you have perspectives um, or opinions you're interested in sharing. Well, I was, yeah. um,
4: I was very... Impressed as I usually am with Coleman, there. And if I sound like I'm, a, I'm like a little bleary, a little little slurry. It's because when we were supposed this to record, literally a pill bottle on the table, there's a pill bottle on the table. What kind like, of pills are there? It's uh, psycho cyclobenzaprine.
2: Oh, that sounds like you're going to fuck you up.
4: Yeah, yeah, that sounds
2: like you're about to step in it right now. I timed <laughs> it so
4: that it would be like at eight o'clock, but we uh-huh. had a few technical. We problems had a few here. technical problems. Yeah, like. Enough so that Moynihan almost like took a baseball bat to the entire. Very, race. very close. In yeah. It was, yeah. it was bad. I have a rage bad. problem. One, know. one more like trip. I'm calm now, yeah. Yeah, you're fine. <sighs> oh, uh, uh, anyways. Uh, no, but listening to Coleman, he's so exact and calm and you also very, very thoughtful about it all. Um and I totally you, do, you don't have to compliment me every time
1: you compliment him
4: it's totally fine this is his this no, is his no no <laughs> I mean he was better than you um, <laughs> but
2: like I was you were saying b- that you were pretty good too <laughs> you are both yeah. people of color so we don't want to, you know, says you yeah. we want to big up everybody in the community I think the way <laughs> so. that you look
4: at it and I don't know Yasha particularly well he's been on the podcast and I have appreciated his work um can't speak to his personal qualities or whatever. Um, his accuser has decided to try this on Twitter, try in the legal sense, on Twitter. Um, that's a weird fucking thing to do. It's a weird way of approaching justice. I have an accusation, a very serious, grave, horrible accusation uh, about somebody, which, if it's true, it's it's so monstrous it's hard to wrap your head around. Um, and I'm going to do it by writing a really long, really hard-to-read uh, essay, um, just... Because of the writing and because of the details and and the the travels that she takes within it, um, and not name the person and then like uh, uh, you know uh, name him publicly in a letter to Jeffrey Goldberg at the Atlantic. Um, this is not and the, hint
2: at it previously, by the
4: hint way. at it previously. This is not the way to achieve meaningful justice. It's not the way to stop a rapist either. If Yasha Monk is a rapist, um, which I if you're going to try this on Twitter then I'm your jury Mm -hmm. and I, as your jury, don't have any, uh, you know, uh, access to any evidence at all. Um, I'm going to go to, I know Yasha a little bit. I don't know you. The, the case that you have presented is not persuasive and I don't like the way that you have presented it, which is not in even a civil case. You can do a civil case. It doesn't have to be to the cops. You can sue him for this Mm -hmm. and she has chosen not to do this She's chosen to do a public naming and shaming and kind of foregrounding the Atlantic um, and the Atlantic's response, which I think is shameful, absolutely shameful by Jeffrey Goldberg. Um,
2: not in the way that she thinks it's shameful, you're saying?
4: Correct. She was like, oh, I'm experiencing rape all over again. Um, they released a statement a month after the fact um saying a freelancer <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, who you know is a freelancer. Um, uh, as you know, we heard these horrible things and, uh, we haven't published anything by the freelancer and, uh, that's what we expect to happen. I mean, is
2: that forward. actually true? Like, I didn't know. I thought he was, a, is he's not a, staff he's a contributor, writer? contributor, but that's, right? I mean, he probably contributes to a lot of places. I he mean, he wrote it's very... 13
4: pieces for them in 2023. Some of them very long and kind of yeah. okay. significant. So, yeah. so like, you know, if the LA times so it's close
2: to being his employer in some ways.
4: If, if the LA Times back when they were still – I'm a contributing editor in theory at the LA Times, but I would write 12 or 13 pieces a year for them if they would to refer to me as a freelancer uh, because I got uh, some rape charges in 2015 or whatever the year is. That's It's that level. Um, it's, but why not
2: go – I guess because the impact is going to be smaller. But why not go to his actual employer, which I believe is Johns Hopkins?
4: Well, she has. And okay. and, 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 and the, here's yeah. the, the thing that makes it kind of um, even more uh, – like broader uh, and potentially more pernicious is because John Hopkins as a university uh, is operating under Title IX rules. You will recall that those Title IX rules were rewritten in 2013 or 1414, 14, and we've talked about this with Emily Bazelon on, on this podcast, and, uh, and I think Greg Lukianoff as well, and um, they really reduced the um, standards of evidence to adjudicate. But, that, poly- but you have to poly- be a
3: student,
2: though. She's not a student there, so Title IX wouldn't apply.
4: No, you would think that it doesn't apply, but um, but they're rewriting those uh, those huh. rules,
2: okay. right?
4: Mm-hmm. Um, so Trump and Betsy DeVos reversed those, but like literally this week, the Biden administration is about to. Um, make them what they were in 2014 or close to it in 2015. It's going to be a ping pong match. I'm which is again, yeah. which is bad. And it's if you can put enough public pressure, and that's all it is, it's public pressure on elite institutions that don't want to feel heat, then this person who is not going to receive the due process of the kind that we actually have in this country, instead it's a public kind of due process, one that hasn't as far as I can tell – Gotten the same kind of fire as a whole lot of different no. cases did in 2019 and 2020. Yeah. Uh, to be clear, That's true. Um, yeah. um, then you know you can see John Hopkins maybe separating themselves. I think it's bullshit. I don't. I don't. I'm not saying that her accusation is bullshit. I, I don't have any reason to believe that it's true necessarily. But I'm saying that the process absolutely, absolutely is bullshit. That you want to go two and a half years later and not file a report and you have your reasons for not doing that, but I'm going to publicly shame someone in something where we can't adjudicate the evidence and mm-hmm. I'm going to do it in a way so that um, em- uh, employ maximum pressure on these people mm-hmm. um, in a way to make them feel uncomfortable because they're a tribe white, not like that. Um, I have many reasons to doubt if I am the jury, if I'm the Twitter jury um, I don't know anything and I'm saying I don't, I don't believe the story enough to trash a person um, who has uh, expressed and issued a categorical denial while kind of shrinking away from the public sphere. I
2: I will say this. I mean, Yasha's been on this podcast, I think, twice, maybe three times. Um, Never in person. It was always via Zoom. I
4: think one time in here. Really? I don't think think I was here for that
2: Um, because I've met him once, and that was – uh with Camille I think you were having dinner with him or something and I stopped by so I don't know the guy and that's important to say because I'm not carrying water for somebody who I I am uh, close friends with or anything like that we don't we don't know each other when you know if I were to send him an email I wouldn't I would have to try to find his email I don't have his email I don't have his contact hey like yash. No I don't know him I don't know him I mean I've I've uh, read and has admired his work and disagree with his work too but you know um I, I would just say that it's. I don't know how anyone can make a judgment about this. It's very, very strange that anybody would. Now, naturally, I see some people, real extreme people, real slimy people um, on Twitter, celebrating it, and the celebration is because they disagree with Yasha
4: Monk's ideas. And he's an opponent of, like, cancel culture and sure. woke culture. Yeah, he's written stuff, about
2: yeah. stuff like that, and there are people like, oh, like, the guy who's... And then, you know, there was one person who said you know and he's on barry weiss's podcast two months ago it's like wait how enough would, said how would like it's not like there was a fucking bat signal that went out <laughs> and everyone's like oh my god pull all the stuff from Yashemang. i don't think this was known by by anyone except for the people who got that email i mean there were rumors about this i know that to be true but um at this point it's essentially the same thing as rumors and the, the reason i say this is that how can one make a judgment about somebody's career, about somebody's life, and keeping in mind that if we move forward on this in the way that things were moved forward on in 2017, 18, 19, um, we can say, short of some bit of evidence that we haven't seen, because I haven't seen any evidence actually, um, except for you know her testimony, which is evidence, but and her writing, and her, writing her and her interviews and these it, things,
4: yeah. and there's reason from those things. Yeah, to, sure.
2: To, to, well, yeah, to 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 kind of ask more questions. That's yeah, what you, you can. You can
4: one
1: one can only scrutinize those things. That is well, one can, well, one the can only scrutinize
2: one one side. I mean, you could you would yeah. never um, fire somebody, uh, run them out of public life, um, tar them forever with this horrible. Um, horrible thing he's a rapist I mean and again I'm saying I don't know anything about this I don't know anything about the story I don't know what to believe because I don't have anything any evidence to kind of adjudicate in my brain because I've only heard um, I've seen a tweet from her and a story that she wrote in the story she didn't name him and there's some questions I had in the story that I'd just as an editor I'd want follow-ups on Um, like just you know basic stuff that wasn't satisfying I think to try to like make a case against somebody but when you haven't heard from the um, accused, there's no point in making any judgment whatsoever. I mean, y- you know, one of the interesting ones was the the person uh, later known as a mattress girl, right? Yeah. And a person who was accused of sexual assault or rape, I think, by mattress girl, Emma sulkowitz, I think was her name. Yeah. Um, who then went big libertarian. Yeah, very, afterwards. very strange, strange. Yeah, and kind of disappeared after... And after that, too, and, you know, this guy's a German student, was kicked off campus, like his kind of life was ruined in a certain way. And then Kathy Young, our friend who uh, wrote something for the Daily Beast, um, saying, well, nobody had asked the German kid for his side of the story. So here's his side of the story, including some messages and some communications.
4: And keeping in mind that these Title IX um, uh, prosecutions on the campus level, they're not criminal uh, but that would get people kicked out of school. Um, you couldn't face your accuser. Yeah. Um, so like you, your story is not going to be told. You're just going to be kicked out. Yeah, yeah.
2: Which is why, you know, the the title people, you know, if they're trying to, you know, get a certain type of justice, what they believe to be justice, which is somebody to be run out of school, that their life will be ruined, crippled, harmed irreparably. Um, that's the way to go. Because, I mean, if you do it in a criminal Prosecution, you do it through the police. It's a higher standard of evidence is demanded. Uh, this is an academic standard of evidence, which is a bit squishier, right? So, I mean, I don't know. What do you make about this uh, of this stuff? It's like I can't, I can't say if, if someone said, "Would you have Yasha Monk on your podcast?" Well, well, yeah, I don't. I, why would I not? Because at that point, it's a very, very easy process. And of course, Coleman mentions this. That that and he, he makes the comparison to um, his friend Faisal who was is Iraqi, you know this uh, calling people Al Qaeda which would ruin their lives. He didn't really need much evidence. Is that it? Just it just weaponizes this thing. Like if you don't like somebody, if you have a bad bad experience with somebody, if it was sort of even borderline, if it wasn't, we don't know if it's sexual assault, if it was rape, if you felt uncomfortable about something, that being a weapon in which the accused doesn't have an opportunity to respond. And he gets fired from his job, gets put on put on leave from, I mean, even if there is evidence that suggests that he's innocent, for instance, pretend that was the case. I don't know. He's still f- screwed. I mean, it's not like there are going to pe- be people because of the way this is on campus, on his own campus, that will never speak to him again that will keep their distance from him that it's like, even when you're vindicated, you're not vindicated. I mean, a good example of this is, um, Kevin Spacey who, um, again, I don't know what happened in those instances. And I, there might be bad stuff. You know, Ben Dreyfus says there was, and I trust Ben, uh, but there were two court cases and he was vindicated in both of them. And it, Hollywood didn't come back for him. In fact, there was a trailer that I sent to you guys the other day that he's he has a movie coming out that is beyond a B movie. It's a D mm-hmm. E movie. It's an F movie and it's so poorly done and the trailer is just it's like a it's like a, a a student movie starring one of the best actors of his generation and he's in that movie because despite the fact that the courts found him innocent, um he's already tainted. That I don't like. And I, and, and and to say that is not to say that a charge is true or false. It's just, I don't know enough. And so why would I just decide that based on an instinct that we should end a person's public and, and, and sort of professional life that way? It just seems wrong to me to do that.
4: I would say um, first that I said Emily Bazelon earlier. It should have been Laura. Laura Bazelon. But there's yeah. too many it's, fucking Bazelons like that. And there's too oh, many pills. Wow, taking would pills. You say they too, all look alike? Well, they're systems uh, so that's, why that's mean, a little different. Have yeah. you seen the pictures? Yeah, um, yeah. But, um, I don't know. But, about yeah. Bazelon and those who have, have Rick worked Bazelon is, mm, some of those cases yeah. and who've written about it like Emily off for the Atlantic uh, turns out um, uh, about some of the injustices that were perpetrated against people who were accused of sexual assault on college campuses during yeah. that period of time, um, which was narrow, but now it's going to be reopened again for a while, at least until Trump wins uh, the next election. Um, is uh who got accused by a, just a tremendously high number of people who were not Americans. Yeah. And that's just context, it doesn't it's not doesn't absolve anyone, but it's something to think about. Um it also came up when the Me Too was really really happening. I forget the the name of the guy um for the Washington Post who then like took a leave of absence and but he was just sort of like an awkward nerd and and what came out Glenn Thrush? I think I think yeah. it was, yeah. And, and we've talked about it on the podcast as it happened. Um, and everyone was sort of, sort of like throwing everything that they had at everybody for a little while. Right? Mm-hmm. It was a crazy moment. Yeah. And some of the things that people could throw at people was like, well, this awkward guy like moved in for a kiss when he shouldn't have. Um, and who is going to do that in moments of stress or moments of, of like, uh, hey, I think this is working out. It's going to be people who cannot pick up social cues in the same way. Mm -hmm. Um, That's going to overwhelmingly be people who are foreigners or a little bit Asperger's-y on some Mm -hmm. level. Um, It's a context. Something like 50 percent of the people who were accused under those Title IX uh, sexual assault adjudications were foreign uh, exchange students
2: and they're disproportionately black too by the way african that's, uh, yeah, uh, african and black american too i mean i think that that laura bazan has pointed that out one of the things that's interesting about this is that her story was published in the magazine she works at which is a uh, a very good journal by the way i appreciate it uh, called liberties which i still subscribe to i think um which was to be funded by lorraine jobs the widow of Steve Jobs, and she pulled her money out when the editor-in-chief of that magazine, Leon Weaseltier, was accused of sexual impropriety. Um, he during claimed, the Me Too moment. During the Me Too moment, and he claimed, nope, this is untrue. There were a bunch of people that work with him at um, the New Republic. I think Ruth Franklin, I can't, I, I shouldn't say that, actually, I don't remember who they were, who said um, yeah, he was a creep and um, he faced this and he, uh, there was a piece about the magazine in Airmail, which is uh, Graydon Aiden Carter's, Carter's uh, a magazine, uh, which is essentially the old Vanity Fair, same typefaces, same everything. And uh, that girl's actually quoted, uh, uh, Celeste uh, Cameron Marcus, I think her name is, girl. Uh, was, uh, I call everybody a girl, uh, was quoted in it and said, um, and this was 2020, um, before she says this thing happened with Yasha Monk, and she said, "You know, I I'm okay working with him. He's, you know, has all these positive things to say." And she said, "And you know, as a victim of sexual assault, um, and this is before the Yashmung thing happened, before uh, the incident, before yeah. the incident, I, whatever that was. And again, we don't know, but um, yeah. So the the place that published it is the the editor went through uh, something. I, the accurate accusations weren't as bad. It wasn't the R word. Um, it was just kind of general creepiness. I think I, I don't remember the exact." details of it, but it was people saying, oh, Leon's always a creep. So, anyway. The point being, we don't know, and um, with just this amount of evidence, I think it's probably, I don't think it's probably, I think it's definitely unfair to ruin somebody's life. I mean, we we need to know more if we're going to say this person can never work again. Yeah. This person cannot be in <clears throat> polite company. It's, it, it's terrifying if you think that that could ever happen to you. I mean, it, it, in it, I've seen examples of it happening to people where it wasn't true. I don't know about this case, as I said. And if that, if those cases that I know that it wasn't true, then it means it could happen to anyone,
4: truly. So, yeah, but and, kind of especially you is what I'm hearing.
2: Weirdly, it never has happened to me.
4: Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I it, at yeah. the risk <laughs> of extending <laughs> yeah, yeah. At,
1: at extending this too far, I mean, it does seem to me that there's just there's an inherent difficulty here for an organization that employs someone who is accused in this way because you do have to investigate it. Of course. And there may not be much evidence and it could very well make your colleagues, for example, or perhaps your clients uncomfortable um, that these allegations are out there. Um, And Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, it is an untenable, untenable situation. And certainly there are good, better and worse ways to handle this, but it's just a,
2: I don't think cutting ties with him is was the right decision. No, no, I, I think it was. I think it was very much the wrong decision. Yeah, yeah. I think it's
1: cowardly, Although I think they're they're posting the original post that I saw said that they suspended their relationship with him, yeah, um, which seemed even, to suggest that, like pending some kind of investigation. Yeah,
4: yeah. but they're not but, investigating. They're they're going to is they're uh, going uh, to they, yeah. wait to to hear what happens. Yeah. Right. Like uh, exactly. So if, That's if, exactly if, it's, right. if it's if That's it's exactly you guys
1: right. and this happens and you're running the organization,
4: yeah. So what do you, we, what do you do? There's I three suppose of us. It depends. We know who's going to get accused among the three of us. <laughs>
2: Camille. I'm not saying <laughs> I'm not saying in
1: this
4: organization.
1: Uh, I was pushing yeah. it a little further away.
2: No,
4: um, I mean I, I I've run organizations as have all of us in different ways and um, if there were a lot of smoke around a person, if the person like you saw at the end of the night um and like ah yeah here, there he goes again um and then you heard the allegation if it fit into a, a pre-existing pattern um then you might go with a uh, let's just suspend things while we figure it out um uh, not a complete and total shutdown but you know something like that yeah. mm-hmm. but if it's just a one-off uh, and it's public and it's from someone who has chosen not to go through the channels that we have in this country. To accuse and adjudicate these things, um, no, I don't see. I don't see you like abandoning that person if that person is part of your uh, editorial or organizational kind of basic integrity. I am sure that the Atlantic Magazine, very confident about this, um, has issued statements and hypes and whatever, saying you know we're the type of place that publishes people like Yasha Monk. Um, He's going to be at the Ideas Festival, Mm. and it's going to be great. And we're in the middle of the conversation that he's part of, and he did this and that, right? Um, They were happy about that. He wasn't an incidental freelancer to the organization. And I think um, in light of the history of the last five years of these types of of situations and how many of them have just like blown up in the faces of the accuser, um, how many just sort of seem ridiculous in retrospect, kind of did it at the time, um, it, I think it is a cowardly move on Jeffrey Goldberg. You understand yeah. it, but it's cowardly.
2: And I think that knowing somebody who's been through it um, and falsely accused, um, as I as I know somebody who's been falsely accused, I mean, I know it to be true, too. It's not like, oh, he's my friend and I trust this person. It's because I was, you know, at some of these events, I, I knew the relationship, and I just was like, this is crazy how this is happening. in this... Um, was there was a vendetta at a certain point. And I'm not saying it happens all the time. I'm not saying this is the default thing. But the fact that it it's did... Possible ha- that it's possible. It's po- possible. Yeah, I mean, you get... You've pe- seen pe- that it's possible. Pe- people get... Angry, And they say, oh, well, you're saying this like scorned women. I'm like, no, I'm just telling you about one event that I know I can't just swallow that and just just disappear it because it doesn't fit in with a with the broader narrative that people don't make things up. It's that's not true. People do make things up. And every human, every gender, every race, every class member, you know, upper class, lower class, middle class doesn't make a difference, has the capacity to lie about things, to overstate things, whatever. And again, let's make it very clear. I'm not talking about this particular example. It's what makes you say, well, I've seen this happen to somebody's life and have it completely torn asunder and, and, and ruined in so many ways. It takes a very long time to come back from it and if they ever do. And more than anything, if somebody if you're renting an apartment, and, you know, are going through that application process, which in places like New York City is like getting into a college sometimes, and they Google your name. I mean, that's what comes up. It's like, oh, you know, let's just – it's best not – if I have five candidates of all equal, um, you know, creditworthiness and they all seem nice, I'm probably going to skip this guy. And that happens a lot to a person over and over and over again. And like, oh, you're saying, oh, you're you're treating these people as victims. Well, they can be. I don't know if they are in certain exa- examples. I just know in general that it's very, very smart to take a step back, because if I were running the Atlantic, um, you would maybe have an internal revolt. That's maybe something you have to deal with. But I would, I would be very clear about it and say, you know, we don't defend, you know, we don't keep people on staff if they're you know, sexual abusers, rapists, whatever it might be. But I don't know that to be true. A, a person can't walk off the street and say that person's a rapist. I'm like, all right, take them out now. Yeah, I, I, that's just that's just if not. That's the standard. A, what it's a you bad have? standard. It's yeah. a bad standard, and it's and I I do get very annoyed that people would hear that and somehow make the bullshit claim that oh you're. You don't care about victims. You're an apologist for X, Y, and Z. Not at all. Not at all. It's just I think a basic standard of justice um, should exist for anybody. At any like look, I think that there's a lot of people that are, you know, if they fit a certain political, you know, background, this if you had a if you had the right political valence on it, it would be, you know, young black kid is accused. And the evidence is kind of dodgy, but there's some previous stuff that maybe he's done. I think there's a lot of people that will give people the benefit of the doubt on a lot of issues, um, but not this one. Um, not this one. I, I once said to—I think I mentioned this podcast one time—that this these people I interviewed that they were saying that their boss was a a creep, and the evidence was was his own admission. And his own admission was very vague, and it was done in 2014. And so he was trying to make this admission by saying, like, this is back before any admission was, was like, get them out of society. And he started a feminist business. Like, literally as, like, I felt bad about how I treated women. And someone f- dug up a post that he wrote about this from, like, six, eight years previous on, on Facebook. And he said, you know, this is who I used to be. I used to like rub up on girls and like try to get them to go to bars and all this stuff. And they revolted and said, this, we, we, we are quitting this company and we're going to take over the company. And this was kind of a news story at the time. So I interviewed them. And at one point I said, we were in a very bad neighborhood where this, we were filming. It was like in a rough neighborhood in, in Philadelphia. And I said, look, this woman said to me, like, I don't think you should ever work again. Literally verbatim said, should never work again. He is, he is the worst. Now, the person didn't do anything to them. It was just like, he said this eight years ago, and it was an admission of being a sexual predator. That was, that was her her gloss on it. I said, "Eh, that's a bit much for what he said, but okay, let's, he should never work again. And later in the interview, I said something that was totally, they didn't connect it, but I said, you know, if a kid around here sticks up a, a bodega, takes a shot at somebody, shot and kill them and goes, you know, young black kid, grew up in a rough circumstance. They're very progressive people. They were they go to jail, and they get out for good behavior. Would you hire them? And they were like, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And like, somebody who shot somebody. <laughs> shot with and a gun. It, with a gun. Absolutely. Would totally do that. But this person should be 70 years old and be prevented from employment it's like debanking it's like you know just just prevents i mean now i that 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 instinct exists out there of like total and i will say this and i don't want to get into any specifics because i don't know the specifics but the one thing i did notice and i pointed this out to you guys that um in the video where she talks about this i was like watching a little of it and she says that she wishes he was not alive which is was really stopped me in my tracks. Like that's like wow. Like wishing death upon somebody. I mean I, it was it was I mean, I have to go back and find the exact quote, but it was like really jarring. Um that which is which is by the way, a more extreme version of he should never work again. <laughs> so ne never breathe again is a is a version of that, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Look, I don't know what happened, but I just don't like Deciding that we should convict somebody without any evidence. One person's word is, is not enough for a court. It shouldn't be enough for, for the average person, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Shit it's a situation.
2: It's a bad situation.
1: Um, I don't know what else is going on that we should talk about.
4: (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Border deal that exploded. There's no new. I mean, everything exploded, right? Yeah, a a heck of a week for the Republican Party.
1: Yeah, the Republican Party melting down. RNC chair gets bounced. Ain't got no money. I think Nikki Haley lost to nobody, anybody. (laughs) She (laughs) literally lost to none of the above, which Um, is fantastic. What else is going on? Oh, it looks like there's there's yet another uh, potential. A peace deal on the table. I suppose Hamas has suggested that there might be some sort of phased hostage <laughs> release in order to achieve peace. After rejecting an, an earlier deal, sure, um, that would have obliged them to release all of the hostages. And I think there was. some- They uh, really think they have the upper hand as well. here, don't they? Yeah,
4: <laughs> yeah they're at least willing to them. keep doing this yeah. for some period I, of time. Yeah, they don't care. I think that the Republican meltdown this week is worthy of reflecting on a little yeah. bit. Uh, which is to say that Republicans back in uh, November and December had said they basically activated the um, the the great insight of uh, J. D. Vance, and you can hear the sarcasm welling up in my throat of J.D Vance and uh, uh, you know a, a, a thousand douche bros out there who wanted to make sure, and Ron DeSantis is kind of part of this too, who answered every question about Ukraine. By bringing up fentanyl in the border within eight mm-hmm. words, um, they wanted to make that explicit in lawmaking. Um, they were going back to Congress. Biden wanted Congress to authorize money for Ukraine to give them bullets and such. Um, <laughs> and uh, and and Republicans who have really thought this is the the winning message are like, yeah, fentanyl border, we have to do something. And so they spent four months. And I really recommend people watch. The speech given today chip
2: roy that one
4: not that one that was a
2: very good speech but i chip, gotta say
4: chip's always great um in his own he was way. like
2: you guys fucking think that donald trump did something he's like he can shut down the border he didn't do anything so stop pretending i, I appreciate it oh, that's that. interesting yeah, uh, yeah so he was james, like really really attacked uh, trump on it.
4: james lankford was the patsy republican senator there's always one every generation that gets like trotted out to negotiate uh, And this
2: one was Carney Lansford. Is that what you
4: said? Carney Lansford (laughs) from Arkansas. Uh, Not a lot of range, but like. Not a uh, range, but a ginger. uh, We like (laughs) ginger, Like Peter Meyer. Um, He he spent four months. Carney Lansford of Michigan. (laughs) Um, uh, He spent four months putting this thing together. He gave a speech today. It's really interesting. I recommend everyone, regardless of what you think about it, um, uh, watch it. Um, uh on uh, you know, I it was on the Senate floor, but it's essentially on c-span talking about what it's like because he was the point man for the GOP to actualize this and come up with a border deal um, that uh, especially goes into the asylum things because asylum is the problem on the border for the most part, right? There's just there's, I think a, a, a backlog of 3.3 3 million asylum cases. Um, that they can't do. I don't know what the average time is, probably at least nine months. And if you can't like give an answer, then they run free in the country. And like everyone. insane. Acknowledges that this isn't the way to do it. Um, And so.
2: And you know, I'm going to be, you know, a complete reactionary here, but it's also worth pointing out that like 97% of those cases are total bullshit.
4: (laughs) Well, maybe more, maybe um, more yeah, uh maybe more, yeah. although I did uh do the you figure out
2: what to say, it's like you know,
4: just today, I did for the first time in such a long time of like, okay, let's listen to n p r at w n y c in the morning, <laughs> let's see how long it takes, yeah, and I swear to God, ten seconds is like. Um, this migrant uh, is a uh, g- uh, uh, gay Guatemalan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like, okay. For fuck's sake, really?
2: We call <laughs> them Gay <Gata-Malans. Gata-Malans. laughs> Sorry, NPR, but that's not the preferred nomenclature.
4: Lankford is a uh, conservative Republican. It's like a, He's a evangelical, uh, super pro life. Um, he owes me money, um, I should point out, because. Hmm. Um, okay. In 2017 or 18, whenever Trump was putting, I think it was 17, was putting together his tax cut. Mm-hmm. Um, this is back when Republicans still pretended to care about deficits, which they absolutely mm-hmm. do not. Uh, yeah. F- for evidence of which, just go look at the Congressional Budget Office's report from just today. Um, saying that the uh, deficit for this year is going to be 1.6 trillion dollars or something. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Um, you can't an, even tell. It's incredible. It's incredible. Not even remember. Um, anyways, when they were doing the tax cut, there was enough Freedom Caucus types of, of people that you could still bust their chops. And I busted Justin Amash's chops uh, in public and in private too. Of of saying like, you're going to sign for this tax cut. You've been like bumming people out about the deficit for five years, pretty effectively actually, from like 2011 to 2014 in all these like, near, or 20, 2009 even, um, all these near-government shutdowns, um, this tax cut deal is absolutely going to increase the deficit because there's no cap on spending, and you're going to spend a lot of money, and he's like, let's bet mm-hmm. um, on this, and the deficit's gone up by $10 trillion. But he, he was <sighs> trotted out to crazy, do this man. thing. He gave a speech today um, talking about all the ways that the deal has been mischaracterized by people, But the part of it that sticks is that a lot of the – and he's reporting this. A lot of the people who came up to him – and you can see this in their behavior – just told him flat out, I don't want Congress to do anything because we have an election in November. And we can win that election if we have the issue. And then after, like, we win the election on the issue, then we can do the thing.
2: I mean, it shows you they really don't care about what's happening on the border, provided it's still nightmarish in October. If if you can get – some b roll of you know ten thousand people surging across the borders, so you can eagle film pass. at eagle pass and then and then release that in an ad that it's fine if you don't really care. The other thing is that you, when when it's all tied together, right there's absurd arguments about the border and tying this to Israel and tying this to Ukraine and everything, and particularly now that you have Republicans who have decided against you know fifty plus years, eighty plus years of Republican policy to say that we must curtail the spending on other people's foreign, con- other people's conflicts, foreign conf- conflicts to us. And at the same time, because you're taking lead from Donald Trump and now people like J.D. Vance, who have magnified conservatism to a point that having a discussion about entitlement spending is off the table. Yes, So you can say, oh my God, the spending and Israel and the spending, you know, you know giving, giving money and weapons to Ukraine because it's so corrupt and, you know, look at all this money that we're flushing down the toilet. It's like, if you guys can't acknowledge that we're flushing do- money down the toilet and a number of these other things that conservatives used to care about, but now because MAGA is about sort of buying off people who are working class in in very, very stupid ways, because you can actually promise people things that don't explode the deficit. It, it, It worked for a long time. You'd be able to convince people that entitlement spending was out of control and it had to be capped. The other thing about this is you see someone like Tom Massey who tweets about the ouster of Kevin McCarthy and says... Nice job, guys. I'm glad glad we did this. And it's funny because Massey is pretty consistently tagged as the most ideological person in Congress. A member of the Freedom Caucus will vote against anything in a very sort of sort of rock rib libertarian way. Former guest in this podcast. former guest in this podcast. And I disagree with Massey on certain things, but I do I do admire his principle in a lot of this stuff, even though it's like one person. And it's like, yeah, okay. I mean, that's what you'd expect. Um, the incredible thing to see is that when you have 2022, when you have this ideological like wave that overtook the primaries, the Republican primaries, and they just got absolutely smoked by all of these people. And you, know, like, you saw this in the past, too. The Sharon Angles and the Tea Party, the Christine O'Donnells, these people that were just going to get... And then it becomes Don Bulldog, and it becomes mm-hmm. fucking Herschel Walker. And to a lesser expen- extent, uh, Mehmet Oz, who wasn't ideological, but he was you know, anointed by Trump. So you had to back him up. You had to say this. And then you have somebody like Tom Massey saying, look at what happens when you get rid of the speaker. And it's like, this is another, it's another version of being too ideological for your own good. I mean, it look, became remember, crazy, right?
4: And part of their failure just yesterday, we're recording this on, I think a Wednesday, um, on Tuesday, the house was like, we're going to impeach Mayarkas. Yes. We're going to impeach...
2: And we're not going to do any math before and see if we can actually do this.
4: And they found out when they counted the votes, they didn't have enough. It's amazing. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And if you haven't watched Marjorie Taylor Greene's like, <laughs> theory about why that happened, she is, all,
2: is she, like, she always reminds me when she gets up there and like raises her fist and her, you know, starts, starts yelling it behind the lectern. It's like if you, if you had a green screen and you made her as, like, somebody who was mad about her order at Panera Bread, it's, like, no different. <laughs> Dude, she's, like, an angry, like, woman in, like, yoga pants, like, f- like, yelling at some poor... Like, she's, like, an incoherent, like, suburban wine mom who is so dumb about politics, and it's not even, like... It's not, I don't, it's, it's not that I disagree with her on politics. I do, and like, almost, not almost everything, but a lot of things. It's just she's so just reliably stupid. It's really astonishing to watch her speak. It's like, I, I mean, you see people like, she's always on Steve Bannon's show and I always get these clips. I don't listen to Steve Bannon's show but I see these clips on Mediaite and things like that. And the thing about Bannon is he's really, really clever. He's like evil in so many ways and he's a total rat bag in so many ways but he's very, very smart. This I, I will not take that away from Steve Bannon. I've spent many, many hours arguing with Steve Bannon and the one thing that I cannot say is that he's dumb. And you know, watching him talk to Marjorie Taylor Greene, that every fiber of his being, he's like dying inside. And he's like, yes, Marjorie, absolutely right. And you can tell he's like, this woman is such an idiot. The same thing I saw him talking uh, to Mike Lindell in person, oh, by wow. the way. This was that m- m- thing I was covering, one of Lindell's. It's pillow man. Yeah, yeah, the, the pillow biting, whatever his name is. I can't remember. <laughs> but he was, and uh, i watching Steve Bannon in close proximity talk to Mike, Mike Lindell, who is like m- like mentally ill and b- pretending like, is there any point where you're like, oh my God, these are, I think about this Tucker too, like, these are my allies? This is where I've ended up?
4: Well, it's this, astonishing to me. The The Republican thing right now is that, Yes, they're the dog who caught the car. Uh, when yeah. it comes with like, we yes. can't talk about Ukraine unless we talk about the border. Yes, um, we did the border, and then like let's run away from what we did for four months. And again, go watch the Langford speech. Um, there's no sense of like the early Tea Party sense, the original generation that included Justin Amash, former guest Mike Lee, Rand Paul, a bunch of a bunch of guys, Ted Cruz, even like there was a. Um, a lot of nod towards constitutional conservatism mm-hmm. about restoring the legislative branch's role and actually passing budgets, writing them, mm-hmm. debating them,
3: mm-hmm. and
4: having rules of order and this kind of stuff. We're going to make this happen and, and discover the process along the way. And it is so much more now. They want to get to, uh, as soon as possible, to the No.
2: Um, yes. Yes.
4: Langford's own state GOP passed a resolution condemning him two weeks ago mm-hmm. preemptively because they knew that he was the lead uh, negotiator on this and that he would come out with something that they weren't going to like. They had not read it. Um, and that's a problem, too. The process is completely broken, um, but they just condemned him. This happened to John Kyle in 2006, who was the patsy that was designated by John McCain in Arizona. Uh, to negotiate what before had been called the McCain-Kennedy comprehensive immigration reform, Um, these people will be castigated as rhinos. And so watch Mm -hmm. the speech. Sit through it um, because he refutes different things. You you might uh, personally disagree with the contents of the border bill, and I think I would disagree with probably 80 percent of it. Yeah. but the process, uh, the the idea, the aspiration, should we try to, to pass bills to solve problems? Should we fund Ukraine or not and have a debate on that that's open and that also acknowledges something that never really gets touched in in all this weird – Demonization of Zelensky, which is not to say like criticism is unwarranted. Criticism is but it's necessary.
2: very odd. They're, but they're... it's like
4: they got a hard on for demonizing so Zelensky. Weird. Like Elon Musk was like, you know, the Republicans or journalists want to give Zelensky a blowjob. Um, there's this, I, I, this, this. It, it's gross, actually. Um, and by and, the
2: way, to that point, and and this is worth um, mentioning the whole Tucker thing. Tucker's in Moscow, right? Yeah. Oh. It's worth talking about that. But the thing about the Zelensky stuff is that Tucker says in his very odd video announcing that he's going to be Teaser Putin. Yeah. Yeah, The teaser from Moscow. From from the rooftop, where I have been. I've been on that exact rooftop. I've filmed on that exact rooftop. It's uh, the Ritz Carlton that overlooks uh, Red Square where Donald Trump uh, supposedly, uh, you know... was the gold shower? Yeah, where he was peeing on, like, it's I don't never know. Believable. Alleged, yeah. allegedly. never believable. Yeah. never believable. No, that's totally true. So many people yeah. that are I saw the video. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they said, they said FSB sounded to me. And they're like, didn't look like him. I was like, the guy, I think that guy's Mexican. They're like, no, nah, just, it's fuzzy. Um, but but um, he says in that, like, uh, you know, nobody wants to. to nobody's uh, bothering to talk to Putin. Which, of course, uh, the funniest thing about that true. was D- Dmitry. <laughs> yeah, fact He got fact checked by Dmitry Peskov, who yeah. was like, "No, people try. <laughs> 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 we don't. We only talk to sick offense, But yeah. no, <laughs> sorry, not true. <laughs> uh, but he's like, you know, he said something that was kind of true, and that thing that was kind of true was that. And I say this is somebody who is um, very much on the side of the Ukrainians in, in you know, being invaded. I'm not, I'm not on the side of people who invade sovereign countries. And he said, you know, it's been mostly sycophantic interviews. Well, I wouldn't go true. that far, but that's true.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't say
2: sycophantic, but you tend to interview people in a particular way when they've been invaded and when they've been, their sovereignty has been violated. It's not like you sit down with them like, but wait a second. What are you doing about corruption? And they're like, <laughs> there's people being killed in my country. So those are going to be sycophantic if it, as it goes on. I expect that would probably be um, less. So, so, for instance, if you sit down with Zelensky now and he's about to fire his top general and there's all this, the, the dissension in, in the ranks in Kiev, that I imagine people would ask about that. But the first like, year is going to be like, how are you getting on? Are yeah. you going to survive this? That's not too surprising. I wish people would be a little you know more critical about certain things, and I do believe there are some people that are like, do you actually see a way out of this because we don't um, that's fine, but there's two things that I think are very strange about the Tucker thing. Um, there is something to to people when they say something to the argument that it hasn't happened yet. let's hang on what's that's it the oh, interview yeah. With, yeah. with putin and I have talked to some friends and mutual friends with Tucker too and said, well, who knows? Maybe he'll pull a rabbit out of his hat and just be really critical and say, well, what about this? What about that? Um, One of the most remarkable things I saw was that on that conservative website, Town Hall, there's a quote from Tucker in that piece, in that little stand-up he does um, on the rooftop in Moscow, where he says, you know, free speech is like, the most important thing. And, you know, and he's talking about himself and he's talking about the Biden administration. like spying on him in the town hall piece was very funny. He's like, you know, and he's obviously telegraphing like the lack of free speech in Moscow. It's like, no, no, he's not. <laughs> that's a, that's a literally <laughs> not what he's saying at all. And he said on the, um, opening Salvo with his ex show, he, the little video before he started the exo. And he said, without freedom of speech, it's the last bit, and I rewatched it the other day. Without freedom of speech, there are no other rights. Without the right to freedom of speech, there are no other rights. And he's going to a place which he's been very, very generous to them, shall we say? This is a soft way of putting it. Where freedom of speech, um, you wind up in the gulag, like Navalny, you lie, wind up poisoned. Like the Skripals, um, you 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 lined up shot like Boris Nemtsov or Anna Politzyma. I mean, a, I mean, shut down like Echo Moscow and Rain TV and all the other ones uh, before it. In prison, like Evan imprisoned, like if you're going to talk about free speech and you think it's a fundamental right to a free society, and you've said positive things about about Vladimir Putin. I don't know, do I expect him to bring up um, the Wall Street Journal uh, reporter who's been imprisoned in Russia on completely fabricated
4: charges? Hopefully. Mm. I, hope
2: he, I hope he does. I'm not hmm. going to say that he's not going to. I don't know if that's true, and I think that it would be very wise of him to do so. Um, and he might do that as an ass-covering exercise, but he might do it because he believes it. I don't know. But it's, it's, it's unfair for, the, for people to say, well, it's going to be a disaster without, without seeing anything. But it's also unfair and also quite stupid with the people saying like, well, you know, Barbara Walters interviewed Castro and, uh, you know, Gaddafi. It's like, well, did Barbara Walters do a show for two years where she was like, you know, I'm really pro Gaddafi? <laughs> like, it's not the same thing. I mean, Tucker it's not has the same been thing.
4: like, why shouldn't I root for Russia on this one? He said
2: that explicitly. He said that explicitly, and but even before the war started, he said, you know, I want Russia to win in these conflicts.
1: Wasn't there, like, some air. official Kremlin document circulated to local press or to Russian press, like, encouraging them
4: to air Tucker segments? Of course. Uh, yeah, they do yeah. it all the time. No, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's it's great for internal propaganda. Of course it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, And that said, the people who call him a traitor... Um, That's the, outrageous. The one like member of European Parliament, which is uh, the most feckless, powerless, useless body. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. body. Like it's like a, it's always a, full of like, Nazis 7, and extremists and Nazis yeah. and Green Party members. Yeah, uh, one person is like, "Oh, we should prosecute him for war crimes or something." Um, that doesn't mean the EU is going to sanction Tucker Carlson's travel. That's never going to happen. Um, but anyone who suggests that and roots that on, no, fuck you, no, don't. Um, Um, he should go to Moscow. Of course he should. He's got a budget and I hope that he wanders and interviews people. And I hope that he does a good interview. I have no reason to expect that to happen at this point in Tucker's life, Um, but maybe he'll surprise
1: us.
2: Maybe
4: I'll retreat retreat back to something before we get out of here in a little bit
1: before I want to retreat back to something that you said a little bit earlier, Matt, you talked about the legislative process and the fact that it just seems to be fundamentally
4: broken. What are we? What are we talking about there? Is I mean, the we don't debacle
1: pass, in Congress? We don't
4: pass budgets. Even the thing. Yeah. So even the thing that was negotiated here with um, uh, James Langford and Democrats and whatever, mm-hmm. it's going to be a gang of something. It's an eight, usually. Is, mm-hmm. is yeah, the yeah, yeah. preferred gang. Um, what Congress is supposed to do is to like pass bills and then have like debates on open amendments on the floor. That stuff has been so broken for so long. And both Amash and, uh, and Massey have said this on our program and, and like talked about that process. Um, so the process of that is completely broken. But also, and this is one of the reasons why Lankford's speech is interesting to watch, he's like, do you want to try to make a problem better um, or do you want to give press conferences? And the honest answer is everybody wants to give press conferences. Of course, yeah. Of course. The legislative branch wants to complain about the executive branch or whatever party they don't like. Um, They don't actually want to put their names on controversial bills um, and to do the fundamental work of basically just writing the budget. They don't want to do that, and that's been going on for a really long time. They love to complain about presidents, uh, for example, of the other party um, exercising a war power without coming to Congress. So the opposition will rise up and they will try to smite them down, but there won't be enough members of the president's own party to join them. For example, when uh, the US was involved in toppling Muammar Gaddafi, um, you know, uh, 12 years ago or whatever. Um, and so it's opportunistic. They love to have the issue to rail against, they don't actually want to do the hard work to honestly rebuke a president in a meaningful way. Um, and to insist on those war powers or whatever power, or just like a budget. Um, instead, you have um, a series of we must pass this or not um, kind of uh, last-minute bills. It's usually in December, the Cromnibus bill. Put everything there, make it into an up-and-down vote, um, and that is negotiated by literally a handful of people. Uh, the actual sitting members of Congress don't have any insight on it. Um, this last bill... Um, uh, that Langford was was plumping, uh, at least people got a couple of days to read it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's really not how any of this should work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, people love to have the issue to uh, to rail against and say a thunderous no. And but, that's what the Oklahoma Party was doing. That's what everyone's yeah. doing. And none of that says to me that anyone is serious about governing. And I don't say that as someone, I don't say that in the service of saying that bill was right and you should vote. No, but they're yes seri- for they're,
2: it. they're serious about winning and and not governing. And if the, yes. in that in that bill Which might means have been they're fucking serious about losing. Exactly, because mm-hmm. I mean that bill might have been you know a complete shit show, and it seems from what I've read of it that it actually was. But when you're publicly saying that you know this will be good for us if this crisis yeah keeps you know boiling over, just about to boil over until the election, there's always an election. I mean, every two years you're going to have an important election, right? Whether it's a presidential election, whether it's Senate House House seats uh, up for grabs. If you keep, If you operate in the sense that we can't solve problems because if we solve them, the other guys might look good and we might lose. I mean, that's a better excuse for kicking the bums out than anything I've ever seen. It's and absolutely and There's
1: certainly been circumstances like this in the not too. Distant past. I mean, I remember the Obama administration, when they still had both Houses of Congress and the White House, they talked about doing something on immigration and did not. And the narrative about it publicly was that there's just not a lot of incentive for them to get this done. Um, if, If this it turns out to continue to be an election issue, it's probably good for them. And of course they never got anything done on the issue. Um so that seems important. Well one the, last... one, this is
2: two famous two famous examples of this. Yeah. And not to say that this is something new. Um both are quite contentious. One I believe more than the other and the other in one in particular is um Kissinger uh, in Paris, blowing up a peace deal with the Vietnamese so the Nixon administration can win the election in 68. The same thing has been said. I, I, there's more evidence this is true that's come out recently. I'm still very skeptical of it. Gary Sick, the um, foreign policy guy who I believe is still alive at Columbia, uh, who coined the term October surprise and that the Reagan administration. You know, said to the Iranians, you know, hold back and to everybody, let's hold back on releasing the hostages until uh, the election because it's a good election issue for us. If that is true, obviously it's a big scandal. Mm-hmm. We have micro versions of this all the time, and those are internal; they're not foreign policy related. But that this stuff happens is not new. The
1: last it, it time that well, just a quick correction: uh, it did seem like there was some interest in doing something about the War Powers Act amongst Democrats directed at Biden, at least some open discussion of that in recent weeks um, related to the Israeli conflict. There's but,
4: all, always discussion, but it never really goes that yeah, far. Yeah. It'll be interesting. And, it seemed a little this, more animated than usual. This is a bit of a French goodbye situation, but one thing that the Biden administration is painfully aware of, or like the Democrats around them as they're looking at all these uh, opinion polls showing that Trump is winning, Um, in the general election, Um, they have a restive base, um, especially young people, obviously especially uh, Arab Americans in Michigan, which is an important swing state, who are pissed off. They don't like Genocide Joe. Every single one of his public appearances is uh, hounded. And you notice these kind of things, right? Like if you go and give a speech at a church and you're trying to figure out who Francois Mitterrand might have been— and if he's still alive or with us, um, you notice- And he's German. And he's German this yeah, time. Yeah, it's yeah. A, It's very strange. His <laughs> mistress is German? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're um, all German. Yeah. Um, and you Good get Lord. heckled. They're always heckled from the position of um, that Genocide Joe is supporting Israel too much. Uh, he feels the heat, and there's left flank, like, clear um, challenges. Um, you know, Jill Stein and- Cornell West, who I don't know if he's going to get on that many ballots, but whenever they're polled, they poll at 2% each. So there's four percentage points. You can't afford to lose four percentage points if you're Joe Biden against Donald Trump. Trump doesn't have a natural place to lose maybe some of that to RFK, but not too much. Whenever you poll just the two and then some combination g- of the other ones, um, it always takes – or almost every single time it takes more from He gave
2: Biden an extraordinarily bizarre amount of power – to the progressive wing of the party, right after he moved into the White House, that is correct. And then it's underappreciated. It's so. underappreciated. And then this happens in their a restive population. They said, "Look, you know, you've been doing this. We're, we're an important part." The thing about it is, I think that it's going to happen on both extremes. Is that the MAGA, the real, um, as Joe Biden would call them, the ultra MAGA types, yeah. and the progressive. Um, Jabal Bowman, AOC, Cori Bush, uh, 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 Presley, Tlaib, et cetera, et cetera. I think there, that's not going to last as a viable block. The media, the institutions have given them a sense that they have more power than they do. I don't believe that the genocide Joe stuff is going to matter at all, that's not the reason that he's being tranced right now and an interesting here's here's an interesting thing that I think um you know is is one of the there's a lot of interesting polls, data points, et cetera. This is probably the most interesting one. And this is last week, I guess. and this is incumbents at this exact moment in their reelection campaigns. George H. w. Bush, um who lost to Bill Clinton, had a fifty four percent approval rating. Barack Obama had a 49% approval rating. Donald Trump had a 46% approval rating, and he lost to Joe Biden. And Joe Biden has a 37% approval rating. That is historically awful. And um, I cannot, this is a own goal. This is a self-inflicted wound, whatever the uh, shitty metaphor you want to use is. But uh, Democrats deserve everything they get from this that you have to have a palace coup at this point. Because we've been talking about this in the past, and we've talked about this when, when the, the polls were pretty fluid. There's been about 18 or 19 polls in a row that have put Joe Biden at, you know, you're going to get smoked by Donald Trump. Yeah. And that is astonishing. And it's not because of Israel. It's not, it's the border, most of all, I would say. The economy, sure... I think that's an important one. The two top ones are economy and border at every point.
4: And then also that he's fucking old. He's and, fucking old too. Yeah. And I mean, every single day at this point. I mean, he he decided not to go on Super Bowl Sunday. Like, I'm not going to do a softball interview on the one time all year that Americans watch yeah, the same TV
1: be, show.
2: He won't be doing any
4: more interviews until the election. That's, no. that's what I'm hearing. No. I mean, he's not- this is
2: fucking weekend at Bernies. It's unbelievable. <laughs> it's great unbelievable. It's unbelievable. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, what is the compra I don't think there's anybody anything but compre- like, ugh, we shouldn't have the president, the senator, the Congressman go out because he puts his foot in his mouth quite a bit. It's like a Dan Quayle kind of thing. He's going to spell potato with an e, right? That kind of thing
4: I mean Joe Scarborough um, who uh, now this is a different level is apparently uh you know the show that uh Biden uh, appointees want to go on so that Joe can watch because it's early enough in the morning he hasn't taken his nap yet or whatever yeah um uh, I was on Megan Kelly earlier this week and she played a super clip of of Joe just like, oh, you know he's. He's really like fired up and ready to go. (laughs) What a
2: fucking loser that guy is!
4: I mean, it's great, I suppose, to like be able to have proximity to power, but also like it can be pretty self embarrassing. It's
2: Baghdad Bob shit though. At this point, like nobody (laughs) looks at that and says, "Oh, he's." giving an honest read on joe biden's cognitive ability which by the way the last poll that i saw on you know people's uh confidence in his cognitive ability was something like 24 percent or something
4: that's a problem that's Um, a problem and like no it's it's shown every day and Scarborough was, was saying something to the effect of like, well, you know, sure, he's going to stumble on his words a little bit because of the stutter. yeah, And um, that's just going to make him more relatable. It's like, no, we're <laughs> we're in a, a moment right now where because of the kind of long-term decline of the international like post-World War II order and um, America just like we, – we're not – it is the most like accidental empire at this point. We're not in the game at all. One, at all. one <laughs> of the
2: best clips I've seen is our friend, Steve Kornacki. Um, just one of the most amazing people in the the world of political journalism. One of the smartest guys that I think we all know, I think we all can agree on that, but he has to deal with, um, this, you know, throwing to these complete fucking retards that he's next to all the time.
4: It's Moynihan's works, yeah, yeah, not yeah. Steve's.
2: No, that's a guy's name, Bill Retard. Yeah, he's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah. Retard is like, yeah, his French. Yeah, but, but he is going through these numbers. This is one of the most amazing clips. I, maybe I can post it in the links because um, it might be hard to find. But he's talking about, he has the big screen up, and he's saying, this is what people believe about, you know, who's the protector of democracy, who's this, that, and the other. And all the numbers are going for Trump. And it cuts back to Joe Scarborough, who is outraged at the people. And it's one of the most perfect <laughs> things I've ever seen. Like, you know, on the Upper West Side with with, with his fucking Patagonia jacket on and his wife who became a journalist because her father was Secretary of State. I mean, this completely useless person, talent was in almost everywhere. And like talk about the privilege <laughs> that this person is. And he's like, I cannot what? These people you're like yelling at 60% of America. And it's like you cannot step back from this echo chamber, this this absolute, you know, uh, this I just can't I don't even echo chamber's too soft. I'm trying to think of a better where it's sort of a, a propaganda apparatus where these people just convince themselves day in and day out that what is happening in the world and happening in politics is either not true or the fault of a group of unbearable racists and homophobes and transphobes. And And
4: this, whatever name, the deplorables, right? And journalists not adjectiving enough.
2: Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. Like, we're not doing our job to convince these people from my maisonette on, you know, 72nd and Broadway. Because I really relate to the people, you know, in Indiana or in Youngstown. And and it's the most amazing clip because he's angry about the opinions of the American people, which is one of the most fascinating things I've ever seen. I sent you guys a clip, too, of uh, Jennifer Rubin, I think it's from about a, maybe eight months ago, maybe a year ago. He's on a panel with um, another Republican, Michael Steele.
4: <laughs> Michael's good. nice. Be nice to Michael.
2: I mean, watch him in this thing, and you're just like, man, <laughs> where's the, if your next fucking paycheck was defending the Khmer Rouge, you'd be like, you know what? People who wear glasses should be executed. You know, it's like, <laughs> okay, Michael, thanks. But Jennifer Rubin, who has this thing where she's like, um, you know, we need to take Twitter away from Elon Musk. We'd have to have like a community call it no like a um, public access public cable access. state by state state Wait, did by she, state. But did
1: she say take it away or did she just say she wants to have like public access? Well, I mean her her yeah, in,
2: I mean. her instinct is like this is a bad way of yeah. having a, a social media. Yeah. So the so state, state should take over. Media. Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, yeah, this is the the uh, voters
1: are deciding. It'll,
2: it'll be the person who was hired <laughs> as a conservative columnist. <laughs> Washington Post. The state should decide and. Um, you know they can decide what is uh, good content, what is true content, and yeah. uh, what is the yeah, name yeah. of
4: her uh, Wash Post thing? It was like right, right turn. turn, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's classic right turn. I think
2: it was, uh, I think it was uh, dyslexic. That was a turn away from the right, yeah. and she, she is uh, now the, cons- yeah, the they, Washington Post, who always has a great sense of conservatives, hired her as a conservative, and Dave Weigel was <laughs>
1: like, "You're a conservative columnist, all right." Just, just a couple of months ago, though. Before Elon took over Twitter, amongst conservatives, it was not unusual to hear them decrying the market operations and the sort of state of social media and the state of tech more broadly. And the fact that there seemed to be a real uniformity of perspective and that it resulted in all sorts of um, censorship, which some of that stuff I'm I'm sympathetic to. It's Um, true. It's happening. Yeah. But at the same time, it is interesting. That at the moment is uniformity of perspective on all sorts of dastardly things. Yeah. <laughs> like, what do you What do you do with that?
2: Elon has really gone off the fucking deep end, though. Sorry to say, but guys, no, God, guys really gone off the deep end. Oh, I mean, what was the tweet today? There was another I didn't one. See of like, of uh, it was another LGBTQ anon was the thing, and he it was just this bizarre. Like he's he's gone, like really around the band, like yeah. really around the band. And I'm sorry, it's, I hate to see it. And yeah, somebody I, I put, compared that it. with a tweet that he had had, uh, you know, put out in 2019 about how uh, like Tesla was the most LGBTQ friendly place to work, and we won the award, and we're so proud. And the rest.
1: Of it. But my sense isn't that that sort of thing has changed. I, I think that he would probably, in fact, I can remember that he said something. Fairly similar to that in recent months, I think that a lot of this is just related to the the temperature of the culture war, and there has been a meaningful derangement on the left and the right in certain respects. Yeah, but he's the he's the is example is of a derangement on the right.
2: No, I mean the excess is right, but well, a minimum true. He's, he's
1: certainly a, a partisan in the culture wars, like a,
4: a full, full throat gleeful, gleeful, gleeful fucking yeah. partisan. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, look, my my response to this is not like, oh my god, the the richest guy in the world is. Um, on the wrong side of these issues. I give a fuck about that. I just like, as a, like I just treat him as any other person on Twitter and it's like, do I unfollow this guy? (laughs) I mean, he's amplified some truly insane things like, you know, the Paul Pelosi conspiracies and things like that. So, so I don't know what's, I don't know what's gotten to him, but, but I don't like it.
4: Disney sucks. He says today. That's good. Well, I think it
2: was in that Disney one was, which was where the, he had some bizarro follow-up tweet that was just like, dude, seriously? <laughs> um, I don't think that like, oh, he has a responsibility because he's so rich and he owns Twitter. It's like, no, be honest with, your, with the people that are reading your stuff, and, you know, we'll be honest in response and say that you've gone a bit batty. But that's just me. I think yeah. he's got a bit of
1: battery. Uh, so. Looking at a headline in The Independent, Rudy Giuliani claims Donald Trump's campaign
4: owes him
2: $2 million. Which
4: well, yeah, because sure he, he
2: owes other people money. So you start telling people that they owe yeah. you money when you need it. So. I
4: mean, the roster of people who will still be on his payroll by, like, October, it's incredible. Yeah. Like, he's bouncing around McDaniel. Yeah. Um, he's bouncing his hot lawyer that you guys like. Um, well, she keeps
2: losing. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> i mean there's a point where you're like i mean i he like reaches her, over but, pats
1: her on the leg and says just keep it it'll be fine just yeah just keep going
4: yeah be okay and, and he's, he's keep burning trying. cash
2: like crazy too, they've
4: like. got no money i mean like robert f kennedy jr has more money lying around yeah. than like the republican party does right now yeah. like mm. it's seriously it's it's competitive
2: think you get his voice fixed I, I so. <laughs> <laughs> no i mean i'm just i don't know the, the medical stuff but yeah maybe get it fixed I mean, we, president. we
1: are. Are we expecting a ruling in Donald Trump's uh, bank fraud trial in New York pretty soon? Because that could be fairly expensive for him as well. After the defamation, right. L, eighty-three mil. Like I mean, I don't know. I don't know how much, how much he's got laying around. You mean,
2: you mean the, the case where the banks were like, no, he paid us back.
1: Yeah, It's fine. <laughs> no, we're good.
2: <laughs> we're so fine. Like, but he lied to you. He was like, yeah, but yeah. I like, mean, I don't know. Any, <laughs> anytime you apply for a credit card, and it's like, what's your annual income? I'm like, I don't know, $800,000. <laughs> <Like>, I just <laughs> try to get a fucking credit card. It's, so when Trump does that, I'm like, yeah, I do that. Yeah. Smaller scale, but I do it.
1: So. Yeah, I mean, this it's the textbook case of uh, selective enforcement here. Man.
2: Yeah, like, I mean, did, I think most people lie when they try to get into college, too. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah. I might have had a little volunteer service that didn't really happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Uh, what, were what were you doing?
4: I, I helped in the olds or something. You
2: You're you're at the clinic?
4: Yeah. It's wild. I mean, we thought and, 20... And, and,
2: and it turned out you were just at the clinic? You weren't volunteering <laughs> yeah. there? You were just getting swabbed? to score.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's very, very interesting to glance backwards. I mean, 2015, 2016 seemed pretty crazy and weird. Um, yeah. the, the entirety of the Trump administration was fairly crazy. 2020 was just scary and bizarre. And now at this point, I mean, you've got declining Joe Biden. And I mean, I don't know how much further he can actually decline while still actually being I mean, vertical. he's basically,
2: he could die. Like,
1: no one would be surprised. I mean, it could no, happen if he, d- if he died
2: in, in, um, <laughs> like in the campaign and they were like, all right, just give it to Kamala. Like it would just be. A I like hot sauce. Yeah. yeah, She likes buses, and I like yellow buses. One time I smoke like weed, and <laughs> <laughs> I put myself in prison. I'll be mean, this fine. That's fine. <laughs> that's fine. Yeah. par yeah. for the course. Yeah. Uh, God, Dean bless Phillips. There we go. Well, poor poor Dean Phillips. Yeah. Anyway, all right. all right,
1: all right.
2: It's a long one because we got Coleman too. So, bye. Okay.
1: We, We know of new
2: methods of attack The Trojan
0: Horse